0: Key Values is a platform where companies are profiled with descriptions of their company values. These profiles describe features such as work-life balance, company culture, daily routines, and strategy. Lin Tai created Key Values with the goal of building a small business that would make money through connecting job seekers to companies with a culture that matched their own personal value system. Key Values has become highly successful and Lynn is making enough money from the business to live comfortably. In a previous episode, Lynn and I discussed her founding story and learning to program as well as the engineering of key values. Today's episode picks up a few years later, with Lynn having found significant success with her own company shortly after learning to program. Lynn's software business is an example of a growing trend, indie hackers. This trend was identified by Cortland Allen, founder of the Indie Hackers platform and the Indie Hackers podcast. Cortland is close friends with Lynn, and Lynn's desire to start her own software company was influenced by her conversations with Cortland. At a certain point, Lynn was considering raising money and growing key values to venture scale. She was accepted into Y Combinator, but she decided to stick with the Indie Hackers route and grow the business independently. Lynn joins the show to talk about the process of starting a software business and the pivotal decisions that she has made around financing, growth, and her own psychology. We will be at KubeCon San Diego 2019 and also AWS Reinvent Las Vegas, and we're planning a meetup at Reinvent on Tuesday, December 3rd for Software Engineering Daily listeners, or I guess anybody, You probably only want to attend if you're a Software Engineering Daily listener. Otherwise, you'll be very confused as to why you are at this meetup. But if you want to register for that, there is a link in the show notes. I'm not sure where we're going to have the meetup yet, but we'll let you know. It'll be Tuesday, December 3rd, somewhere in Las Vegas. I hope to see you there. This podcast is brought to you by PagerDuty. You've probably heard of PagerDuty. Teams trust PagerDuty to help them deliver high quality digital experiences to their customers. With PagerDuty, teams spend less time reacting to incidents and more time building software. Over 12,000 businesses rely on PagerDuty to identify issues and opportunities in real time and bring together the right people to fix problems faster and prevent those problems from happening again. PagerDuty helps your company's digital operations run more smoothly. PagerDuty helps you intelligently pinpoint issues like outages, as well as capitalize on opportunities, empowering teams to take the right, real-time action. To see how companies like GE, Vodafone, Box, and American Eagle rely on PagerDuty to continuously improve their digital operations, visit PagerDuty.com. I'm really happy to have PagerDuty as a sponsor. I first heard about them on a podcast probably more than five years ago. And so it's quite satisfying to have them on Software Engineering Daily as a sponsor. I've been hearing about their product for many years, and I hope you check it out at (music) PagerDuty.com. Lynn Tai, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily.
1: (laughs) I didn't know you were going to start just now. (laughs) Hello.
0: (laughs) When we last spoke, you had just gotten your business Key Values off the ground. It's a platform where companies post their values. It allows people to apply for jobs that fit their own personal values. We actually did that interview two years ago. Does it feel like time is moving faster when you're running your own business?
1: It's both. It's like so much has happened in two years, but it also like a lot hasn't changed or it's a lot has happened and hasn't happened at the same time. So time is weird for me. What is time?
0: What's the biggest change that has occurred in the last two years?
1: Funny enough for key values, the business, it's like the way it's set up, the idea, the direction, the vision is pretty much identical. The product is like identical, but I feel like I'm. Actually funny, I think the thing that makes me know that time has passed is I was so nervous the first time that we did. I think you were the first podcast I'd ever been invited onto. I've probably done I don't even know how many I've lost count but since then. And I think I feel like I've formed my opinions in this new world of like entrepreneurship or like in tech or business, which I just I was so new before that I didn't know. So I think that's like I just like more confident in general, but I remember I was really nervous the first time. I like was like sweating bullets. I don't think you knew that because we weren't in person then. I didn't but know that. I was just so nervous.
0: I don't know. Is software easier than you anticipated? What aspect? Like the writing of it? Writing software.
1: Yeah. I think I thought it was going to be a lot harder than it was to learn. That said, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm like a good software engineer. I wouldn't even call myself a software engineer at this point. I code very little Join the club. Yeah, so I feel like if I have looked for jobs right now, I would
0: be junior. You think software engineering is about writing code?
1: To some degree, yeah. I mean, it's like definitely a month. I mean, oh, well, that's what I was asking. What part of software engineering? If you're about writing the software, then yeah, I think it is... You have to know how
0: to code. I don't know. I mean, what, let's break down the word, you know, engineering. What is it? That? That? that word just means building something, right? That's
1: true. But yeah, you have to know, you have to have like the tools to build things. But I, that's a funny conversation. This I just had a really heated debate with a couple of girlfriends who went to MIT with me and they studied like mechanical or like civil engineering. And they're annoyed that here in San Francisco, when someone's like, are you technical? They're like, yes. And they're like, means that you know how to code. But tech, you know, it's like the meaning in San Francisco is that you know how to code. Whereas you know, a scientist is, is technically technical, but it's just definitions.
0: But don't you think that's a fair assumption for people to make? Because Oh, I I do. Everybody should, everybody who considers themselves a scientist, I think should have some rudimentary ability to code. Oh, I don't think that's true.
1: Or I mean, not anyone who's listening to scientists is like, "Mm, like, I hate you. That's not true. I didn't know how to code when I was a scientist. I mean, like I barely did. I would like Fake it. I would actually memorize. This is so embarrassing. I would memorize all of the characters. I'd be like space, space, dash, like colon, like I like just like memorize the characters. I didn't understand what I was writing though.
0: And if I recall, your career in science was wildly successful, <laughs> both personally and academically.
1: <laughs> well, I just I think it was I I didn't finish the story, or I don't know. I felt successful at the time, which is why it was weird because I think things were going well. Like I had a paper that was published and. I passed quals early in, in my class of like twelve people at UCSF, and this is yeah all this is 2012. But then I just dropped out anyway,
0: so I don't know. I guess that's a failure to a lot of people, but it just to me, it seems it seems hard to be a sci- uh, to be a responsible scientist either academically or as like an applied scientist, which you know is kind of what engineering is, without having a sense of. What the state of the art can do in terms of processing large sample sizes. I mean, science is all about getting as close to the truth as you can, and getting close to the truth generally requires having a large sample size. Processing large sample sizes these days is kind of about being technical.
1: Yeah, so that's interesting. So you can think about like other, like more cognitive studies where it's a lot of. Like the sample sizes are obviously, the bigger the sample size, the better, but maybe it's like a sample size of like 20 because you have to do experiments with 20 monkeys over a year and there just aren't, it's like, it's harder to collect that data. Whereas if you're doing like experiments with sea elegans, which are basically little worms or flies, it's like, you can have a huge sample size because these just, I mean, they're just easier to have. I mean... Yeah. You just can't kill. I feel scared saying this because people who are like aren't in science get nervous, but like, yeah, like the, the lives of a monkey are a little bit more valuable than that of like a fly. So the sample size is actually, you don't necessarily need to do that. And there's like a lot of sample sizes or sorry, a lot of experiments where it's like, even in like with infant and childhood psychology studies, like that's still science. I would say. I mean, it's like, then there's like the hard science versus soft science and people, I don't know, the boundaries are always, well, they're polarizing, but I don't think you need to know how to code to be a scientist.
0: Okay. Is entrepreneurship easier than you expected? Ooh, that's a
1: tricky question. I would actually say it's not, but I think I've been lucky in a lot of ways too. I also don't view... Ooh, this is a good question. I mean, it's definitely challenging, but at the same time, the way that I got into it was I was freelancing first as like a consultant and I was charging on an hourly base. And I think in a way, I just wanted to scale that process rather than like build an empire and like take over big giants or anything like that. And I think sometimes, I think it's really good that people stretch and like have these really ambitious goals. But then of course, it's when you shoot from the moon, like you, it's hard to, to make it. And so I think my, I was like a little bit more conservative and risk averse to some degree, maybe not even deliberately, just this is what I like. And so it, it didn't feel like a huge leap from what I was doing before, if that makes sense. I don't know. Does that make sense?
0: Well, it does. You know, when I think about your, your story and I hear what you say, and I read some of the stuff that you tweet and talk about oh and, god, and so on, <laughs> my sense is that you have really found in the world of software entrepreneurs a group of people who you can align with, like a group of people who you can get along with well. And I mean, I I, I, agree with that. I, I feel that way. Yeah. And I think that has made things much easier than than in previous domains, because I feel like there is a kind of unspoken tribalism that I get along with people on. Like, I know other people have found this in religion or, mm, you know, I like see, art I see. or something, but I'm like, no, this you is You found your family, th- you found your tribe in entrepreneurship. Seriously.
1: Like, yeah. Well, I think that makes sense for anything that you love a lot. Like if you love something, you, you will usually, I would say, find other people, like you are excited about other people who are also passionate about the same thing. And so- that does make things easier for sure. I mean, the whole idea of like doing things alone is doing it wrong is definitely true. So if you want to start a business, doing it in isolation by yourself with no help is kind of, I mean like power to you, that's gonna be extra hard, but it will make it harder.
0: That is basically what you're doing though, right? Working in isolation?
1: Oh no, not at all. It's weird. I think I define, so yes, I'm okay. So I'm a solo founder. I have no employees. I there's no one else working on key values. I have some, I actually have one of my best friends from childhood is helping me part-time like a few hours a week when Mm -hmm. she can with just like, she's a copy editor. She's a really good writer. So she helps me a little bit here and there. I've been trying to get her to come on more, but um, yeah, I mean, key values is mostly me, but for sure I am not doing it by myself. Like I have so much help from other people, whether it's like emotional or just like strategic advice or marketing. I hired someone, a sales coach guru, I call my sales guru, who like taught me sales. I'm, yeah, I mean, I guess I have a lot of friends, we'll like trade, we just help each other, I guess. And in some ways it does feel like we're on the same team, but instead of us all working on the same thing together, like why, is, why does a team have to be defined as like you're all working on the exact same thing? Like we're all of us have a goal of like building our own successful businesses and we all have our own, but we still help each other. Does right. that make sense? So I don't really feel like alone. I've never really felt alone in that regard.
0: Well, let's take the sales thing, for example. I assume you pay this sales guru. For
1: sure. But an hourly rate. And yeah, I think that's... So he's on my team. I'm on his team too. I like encourage him hardcore to start his own consultancy. I was like, do you know how many founders need sales help? Tons. You should do like run with this. I've sent him at least five, six, seven clients, customers of founders who need his help.
0: Do you think that the idea of people needing equity in your business in order to give their best work do you think that's true i feel like that's that's kind of an axiom that
1: i don't think that's true and i say that confidently because it wasn't true for me like before i even thought that i was ever the type of person to start a business i was under the impression that like equity is just a lottery ticket and i don't actually buy a lottery ticket. So I would rather have the cash now. Like I would much rather have money today than the hope for more money later. And so I never even like, I would negotiate for less equity. So I like, it's just, I mean, everyone, everyone's different. Right. So I don't think that's the only way to get someone to care because it wasn't for me. So I don't know. I mean, if someone wanted equity and key values, I wouldn't be, I'm not like, I'm not like, it's all mine. I need it. I don't think like that. So but that would be
0: a total lottery ticket in your case, because you don't have any plans to be ex- acquired. I, or, well, that's the other
1: reason. I'm like, I don't even know if that would make sense for you. Or if you were like, Lynn, I want in. I would say, I don't know if that's, like, I can't, I don't know if that's the exit plan for that to be something for you in the future. So I don't know. But I don't think equity, this is like an interesting conversation, because I actually wanted to write this blog post about this. And people have really strong opinions about equity, do. In, especially in this city. But I do think there's a spectrum and it's definitely like everyone has a very different view of it. Granted, I think that's colored by the fact that most people don't understand it, myself included. It is complicated. I like interviewed a bunch of founders and when we got really into the nitty gritty, I think pretty much every founder was like, can you give me a second? Let me just look this up real quick. Like, it's not like, it's just not something that's common knowledge. So I think without a really, really good understanding of how equity works and what, the, like, just what factors in and contributes to how someone should value that at a company, then it's like conversations about how much it matters and is kind of like hand wavy. But yeah, you can just like walk down the street and people are talking about like, Oh, the stock options, the strike price, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, I don't even know if they, you know, who knows? That was me when I first started my first job in, in tech. I was like, Oh, like I was like 10,000 shares. But like, out of what, like, what does that mean? I was like 10,000 sounds like a lot, you know, it's just like, so.
0: My impression is that there is a stage at a company where It actually is totally pivotal. Like maybe it's... Pivotal for who or for what? Pivotal to have this kind of equity situation. So if you imagine like a company that's poised to IPO, and it's sort of like, can we sprint to make the IPO as big of a awesome event as possible so these you know like the uber employees in the two to five year run up to the ipo or where stripe is now or where airbnb is yeah now, i agree I like agree. then the equity seems to really count Yeah. because if you're a vp there you really have a lot of control over how well the company is going to do in that run up to the ipo in that run up to the liquidity event so it's like it really matters there
1: i agree and that's what, because there's like more of a sure thing Like Stripe, Airbnb, I mean, and you never know, but like it's, I would say it's like a sure thing.
0: Yeah. And I guess what's interesting is like that makes it, if you need for the equity to be structured well in that situation, that probably means you have to have the equity structured correctly from the get go. Otherwise you're just, you're not even going to have things correctly aligned once you get to that pivotal moment.
1: Yep. I think that's true. But yeah, as you know, for me, that doesn't, really applies. So I don't like
0: think about it. Nor that. I really, but,
1: <laughs> but yeah, no, it's interesting. I think, but the skin in the game, I mean, this is totally analogous to just doing sales. I think it's as long as both parties feels like they're getting value and it's fair, then that's what you should do. And there's no other rules around that. It's like, it's a good, like, If you're doing this podcast and I was like, I will pay you for this podcast, by the way, I'm not (laughs) paying you for this podcast, but I thought it was really valuable because of something for my business. Like maybe I would pay you $10,000 for it. Maybe someone else would be like.
0: We actually charge, we charge more than that.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, or like maybe it should be like a hundred thousand, but like, I'm just saying like, it depends on how we value it. Right. And this is why I think this is the art of sales that I've learned. It's just like the value add is totally different depending on who you're talking to. And so it's like, I don't know if tiered pricing, at least in my case, always makes sense, but that is definitely true for employment. Like as an employee, when you interview at different jobs, it's not like you should, it totally depends. Like, it's not just like you as a person, how much should you make? It's like, how is the company doing? What stage are they at? How is your skill set going to benefit their business at this particular time, you know, it's like, it's, there's so many other factors that go into that. So it's like, I don't know, it just kind of, as long as it's fair on both sides, it, that's how you should decide.
0: Well, here's what I love about software businesses and frankly, media businesses is, People have no idea what anything's worth. I have no idea what anything's worth. You have no No idea idea. what you're winging it. You're totally winging it. And I assume that was one of the. Actually, I think you even mentioned that in your interview with Cortland, the the Indie Hackers interview you did with him, where you were talking about sales and your sales coach gave you some advice. It was, you know, I think it was related to the idea that. Nobody knows what this is worth. So you you throw out a price and you just kind of like wing it.
1: it yeah, <laughs> totally. It's to, like you just price test. You just say some random numbers and see how people respond. And that's also tricky because I think in the very beginning, I was like, okay, I'm going to pick five companies like or not even I was like the next five companies that reach out to me. I'm just going to say different numbers and see what they say. But I was stupid and didn't think about what things were like from that perspective. If like a big company like Airbnb reached out to me, it'd be very different than if a two-person startup that just like is pre-revenue, <laughs> hasn't found product market fit reached out to me. I can't price them the same. I mean, that's total that's an exaggeration of that, but like I didn't consider some of the other things like how much they're going to be hiring, the types of roles, the geo that they're hiring in, like the amount of money that you would pay for a service to help you hire is totally proportional to how how much money you're going to spend on these hires in the first place. So, if you're going to hire 10 people in San Francisco versus 10 people in Europe or South America, it's going to be different, like how much you're spending total on those 10 hires. And therefore, the pricing is going to be different for me. Yeah.
0: That makes sense? <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. Give me, give me some more. So you sell a hiring product, basically.
1: Sort of. I would say I sell employer branding. More than anything. It's actually funny. I wouldn't even consider key values to be software, like as a product. It is not. It's like the code is like, there's nothing complicated about it. It's a static site. It's the content. So it's also like a media, I guess, to some degree business. But yeah, so companies pay a flat fee for a yearly subscription. I'm doing air quotes. And that includes the content creation where I work with them to articulate who it is that they are and help answer a lot of the questions that candidates will have and kind of just Give people an insider look into what life would be like at this company should they join. And that way they have that information before they even, I mean, before they even have to like do a call, like, or even fill out an application or write a cover letter. And so it's really the content that companies are paying for. And then, of course, there's the added part of then being listed on key values that has its own audience. And I will continue to list it and promote it throughout the year. But yeah.
0: looking for a job is painful, and if you are in software and you have the skill set needed to get a job in technology, it can sometimes seem very strange that it takes so long to find a job that's a good fit for you. Vettery is an online hiring marketplace that connects highly qualified workers with top companies. Vettery keeps the quality of workers and companies on the platform high, because Vettery vets both workers and companies, access is exclusive, and you can apply to find a job through Vettery by going to Vettery.com/seDaily. That's V-E-T-T-E-R-Y.com/seDaily. Once you're accepted to Vettery, you have access to a modern hiring process. You can set preferences for location, experience level, salary requirements, and other parameters so that you only get job opportunities that appeal to you. No more of those recruiters sending you blind messages that say they are looking for a Java rock star with 35 years of experience who's willing to relocate to Antarctica. We all know that there is a better way to find a job. So check out vetery.com slash sedaily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through vetery. Vettery is changing the way people get hired and the way that people hire. So check out vettery.com/se daily and get a three hundred dollars sign up bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. That's v-e-t-t-e-r-y.com/se daily. Thank you to Vettery for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. So the business is if I go to Key Values there are companies listed, and Mm -hmm. I can look through their values. If I have my own set of values, I can find companies that align with those. And then on those different pages, there are job links. So are you getting a referral Kickback on that, or no. is it you literally have a fixed cost that people pay? Yeah, as a subscription. it is. So, and oh this is so God. funny because that is a good business.
1: No, it's funny because everyone's like, You're an idiot, because it's so like recruiting is a very, very juicy pie. And if you wanted to make more money, I should charge by placement or hires, like I should have a contingency model. Recruiters, this is crazy. Recruiters at this point are charging anywhere between like 25 to 35% of first year salary. And if they're placing people that are like making 200, 250K a year, it's like, I mean, that's, that's a good business. But for me, it's like, it was never really about the money one and two, well, maybe it's three reasons, but two, I genuinely think the problem with recruiting is this contingency model because. Like if my job is to get someone to stay at your company just long enough to hit the Ooh. 90 day mark, that's when I get paid out. Then it's like, I'm not really aligned with you or the candidate. Cause I'm like, you should just like it enough for three months. And then in some cases, this is really like sneaky is that if, if I place someone at your company for 90 days and then you pay me and then they're not happy, I'm like, Oh yeah, that wasn't my bad, but I have these other companies I can place you at. So I can get paid out twice from the same person. Ooh. You know what I mean? Or like even three times if you really think about it. But Ooh. I mean, and I know this happens because I've met people who, who've who done it. And it's like, yeah, anyways, I don't want myself to be incentivized by anything that isn't fully aligned with everyone because I just am in the business of like making good relationships. And yeah, I don't know. I just think that feels bad. So that's the other reason why I don't do contingency. But the last reason is just that I'm not a recruiter. Like that doesn't sound fun to me. And I only really do things that sound fun to me. (laughs) Mm.
0: But that's pretty savvy. So that makes it such that instead of having a referral-based business, which is a grind, and probably becomes more of kind of a more operationally intense, I mean, how operationally intensive is your business?
1: This is one of those questions where it's like, I think it's just all relative. To me, it's not operationally intensive. I like, I work with all these companies, but I love doing that. It's like fun for me. But I guess for some people, they're like, wow, you spend like an hour or two or three with every company just talking about this, like putting together a profile. And it's like, yeah, but that's like, it's so fun. It's it like is a, fun. To me, yeah. And like, And I like writing and I like helping people write. And I really, 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 and this is true for, this has always been true. It will always be true for me. I like love finding hidden gems and then telling everyone about it. So, and that's like basically every company. They're like, they're hmm. so much cooler and more interesting and nuanced. What's and an have example? So much, like, okay, so, well, I'm, like, scared to call it, but I just published this profile, Mode Analytics. Okay, so if I was me two years ago, I'm like, Mode Analytics. Hmm, that sounds <laughs> like, I mean, okay, interesting. Maybe, yeah, I'm, like, not that interested. Their product is cool, their, their space is cool, and then when I started talking to their team members, it's like, it is just, breaks a lot of stereotypes that I have, and I'm sure other people have, where, like, if you think someone who's, like, really analytical thinker, like, data-driven, that they're... You just imagine a certain type of person and they're like the complete opposite. They're like very thoughtful, super high EQ. They have, they've grown and developed all these processes to be like thoroughly inclusive from their interview to how they run meetings to they have a transparent performance framework so that compensation is tied to titles and levels. And it's just like, I wish I could demo it, but like you can just go and click on what you need to do if you want to get promoted. It's just like, there's no questions asked. If someone gets promoted, you can literally just go look pull it up on your browser and see what they had to do to get to that stage and how much they're paid. And it's just like completely transparent. And I'm like, that's really cool they do that. Also, they have, I talked to someone and they were like, oh yeah, this is the first time in my entire career where I've reported an engineer who reported to a female who reported to another female. So like three, Mm. yeah, like three links in the reporting chain of female engineers. And I was like, that's also something, like, I don't know. I just wouldn't have, I jumped to conclusions when I heard the name, mode analytics. Right. And so it's like, there's just so much that's interesting about hmm. this, this group of people. And I think that's kind of my point. point two years ago or two and a half years ago when I was looking for jobs, I probably would have just kept scrolling. I was like, next, like, I'm like looking for flashy logos or like, I don't know what I was doing. I was just like, there's just so many companies you could work for. How do you know which one to learn about? It's like, what is it? Option paralysis, choice paralysis. There's just too many choices. And so, yeah, you pass up on lots of good stuff as a result.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're describing the same kind of thing that I like about what I get to do every day is, you know, talking to people. The thing about software is, you know, I think my dad has this. So my dad is a doctor and he... What kind of doctor? Family practice. Oh, okay. So he sometimes is like, he'll be discussing like, oh, I had this patient one time uh, and they were an engineer and you know how engineers think. And I'm like, uh, what, what do you mean by that? What do he's like, oh, you know, they're so mechanical in their thinking; they're so cold and rational. I'm like, I don't think that's a correct description of engineers. Like, engineers are actually this bohemian, artistic group of people that happen to oftentimes have some analytical bent. But seeing the, the large enterprises that these people are able to build and what they do when they have resources it often is like this expression of their creativity at scale. For
1: sure. I think that, I mean, I do think there are some trends in terms of like who's drawn to the type of lifestyle that is and the type of thinking, but it's true. There's not like, especially today, and maybe this is just because I have, maybe the times have changed or maybe I've just met more software engineers, but I think there's like, there's no one main box. There's like every type of flavor <laughs> and kind of, personality that is drawn to software engineering. So, yeah.
0: What's the hardest part about being a indie hacker?
1: Oh man, lots of hard things. And also, I don't even know how you, how do you define indie hacker? Are you asking like, what's the hardest thing? What's the hardest challenge I've Whatever had in the last Cortland's two years? definition is. Cor- I don't even know. Can you recite it? You're we- By the way, you're wearing an indie <laughs> hacker shirt, so I feel like I you know. should be able
0: to repeat Girl give gave it to me. <laughs> Wonderfully fitting. <laughs> comfortable t-shirt
1: I think the hardest part is the funnest part which is just that actually this is perfectly aligned with what you just said when I started because I was just so brand new to the world this world of entrepreneurship indie hacking like whatever you want to call it just doing something on your own I felt like there was steps I had to learn like once I get to this then I get to graduate and learn this next step and then once I like tackle that. There's this next thing and I thought it would like be really ordered, if that makes sense, kind of like schooling, like normal classes, like you're like once you do algebra 1, you do algebra 2 or whatever. But I really 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 now more than ever think it's like you have unlimited resources, make art. Like go. And so Absolutely. the hardest part is just a realizing that there are probably, I mean there's definitely lots of wrong things you can do, lots of mistakes you can make, but there's also tons of right like good options and none of them, like they're all right. There's multiple right answers, which is weird, especially for me as an like, uh, Asian girl who like, was A-plus student and was in academia. Like, I thought there was one right way of doing things and there just isn't. And so that, I think, took me a long time to just understand because I was constantly scared. I, I wasn't doing things the right way or the best way. And truly, there just isn't, I really don't think there's a best or right way for anything. Absolutely. And so that part was really tricky and hard. And you, I think I stressed. like the hardest part is just dealing with my own emotional and like psychological issues and just having a lot of pressure on myself. Like no one, like, it's fine. If I don't, it's like, if this was a class, it'd be fine. If I got a B plus it's fine. Like who really cares? But for some reason, I'm like, stress myself out trying to get an A plus. And I, I let go of that, but that was probably the hardest
0: part. This is why it confuses me that Corland likes chess, is that <laughs> chess, you have to memorize all these openings to just get to like no, level one in chess. What is that,
1: the guy, oh my God, Magnus, is that yeah. his name? Yeah, he's, well, I'm sure he does memorize quite a bit, but unlike Anand, question mark, I might be right, butchering, right, his, right. Where he like actually memorized all these different, you know, scenarios and different outcomes following different moves like I feel like Magnus wasn't he was just kind of like feeling it I feel like he like spoke he derived chess. them he like spoke. yeah he like spoke chess I mean that's why everyone's always like he's like from another planet blah blah, blah. but I think he re- I think that's who knows maybe Corlin likes memorizing it though I don't know I'm just really happy that Corlin has a hobby he's gonna hate me he won't listen to it.
0: <laughs> he won't he
1: definitely won't listen to this, but he he thinks it's like dismissive or something when I say stuff like that but I think it's good that he has he's doing it's not a hobby
0: that. it's a sport
1: Okay, well, that one, I don't know. (laughs) Fine, it is.
0: (laughs) So that difficulty, I mean, that sounds like a palette of options. That sounds fun. Why would that ever make things difficult if you just have this expansive realm of creativity to explore?
1: Well, I think it's fun once you know that. Once you think about it that way, but it's because I didn't know that. And so it got confusing when I was weighing two options and they seemed both really good and I was mm. confused. And so I would just like advice shop and every, and then people would basically fall into two camps. Right. And I was like, I trust this person. I respect this person. This person knows what they're talking about. I should listen to them, but they're disagreeing and that's really confusing. And I think, yeah, I mean, the answer is that they're both right. but <laughs> It was just like, I was like a confused how there wasn't a clear winner, I guess. Right. and. And then extrapolate that. There's like actually 10, there's 10 different options. And that gets
0: really confusing. Absolutely. Can you give me an example? Yeah. I, mean, I, can, I can think of so oh, many. yeah, for That sure. very much rings true to me. So,
1: this is, so I think I know that, well, I may or may not have talked about this in my podcast, in my episode with Cortland. But so during YC, it was really, really, really confusing because before YC, I was by myself, like figuring out. I was like a brand new baby wandering around, like exploring what things felt like. I knew nothing about the world and I, any piece of advice was helpful because I just had nothing. I was starting with, with zero. And then I get into YC and there's like a dozen YC partners who've literally like built companies themselves and have seen hundreds and hundreds of companies. They have so much information. They have like, they're really, really experienced and they are also have strong opinions. And so I, when one of them would tell me something like that is gold. Like I feel like I just won the lottery because this really smart person just helped me skip 10 steps because they knew something I could not have seen myself. And I talked to someone else and they also had really good insight into something, but it, wasn't the same as the first person. And then I talked to a third person. I'm like, oh wait, that person said that the first two ideas were (laughs) really actually they were not thought through. And then it would so then I started having this thrash problem. And then of course it's like, okay, well who cares who said it, let's just look at the ideas. So I'm just gonna make it up. So one of them was like key values should be an ATS because the whole part of hiring Applicant
0: tracking system. Yeah, sorry,
1: applicant tracking system like greenhouse or lever, like it's useless unless an applicant go to your site, fill an application, and then you actually like
0: know for And for fact, reference, your site doesn't even have a login.
1: Correct. Exactly. So that's, that's another good idea, right? Someone that suggested. But right now it's like, how do I prove to companies that I'm placing people or that people are applying unless I'm capturing that information myself? Right now, if I send someone off, to, off of key values domain, then I have no, no idea what's going to happen. So it was like, that's maybe that's true. Like if I want to actually own the metrics then I have to build something to capture them. So that was one idea. Another idea was like, Oh, key value should be, or actually this one was interesting. It was just like, it needs to be self-serve. Like companies need to be able to do this themselves. So you can scale, you need to streamline the whole process. It should be like a month, like, like a normal job board. Like you go, you can pay by month or like maybe three months at a time, but you don't need to interface with anyone. You don't need to do sales. And like, these aren't necessarily opposite things, but selling an ATS requires integration and then you wouldn't be I was like so they weren't necessarily saying something different but I was like trying to merge all the good advice and I was like wait these don't make sense and then another someone else was like you know keep you're thinking about this whole the whole thing wrong like you're building a community like it should be a network and people should join like have to join and then also the value of building a really valuable network of like senior engineers is that you have access to them therefore you need to require them to fill out a profile you need to know their names you need to know what like their ex- background, their experience, their maybe their gender, like where they live, like all these basic things. And so that's like also a very different direction. And I don't think any of these are wrong. I think all of these products could have been good, but I just didn't. Yeah. I mean, there's literally, I think I wrote down 12, like every single week was a new idea and that was really confusing. So I had like, it was a stressful
0: time. So one way I can relate to this is I used to play poker a lot and I played poker online. And one thing people often did back in those days was when a hand gets done, you get something called a hand history. So you get the history of what happened in the hand. Like, cause a mm-hmm. poker hand is, is relatively short. Yep. It's not as long as like a chess game, for example. Right, right, right. So you can very quickly digest everything that happened in a single hand of poker. And on these forums that I used to participate in the two plus two forums, the biggest poker forums, mm-hmm. you would copy paste your hand history Except you would cut part of it off because you would say you would not tell the audience the conclusion because you want to get their opinion. So you would say, okay, here's what I did up until this pivotal moment in the hand and I could have gone all in or I could have I folded see. okay I could have bluffed or I could have just folded right. And you would post your hand and you would get, Divergent responses, first, yeah. and you, like the first response, you know, you get it from some pro, and you've looked up to this pro for years, and mm-hmm. you trust their opinion, mm-hmm. and they're like, "Oh, I definitely would have folded," and you're like, "Ah, oh, damn it!" You're
1: I like went. I should
0: have folded. I, I should have folded. And then the next response is like somebody else who you really trust yeah. and look up to, who's been doing really, really well lately, and they're like. Absolutely not! Like Bluff, go, go, all go all in, go all yeah, all in. whatever. And then you'll get a response from somebody else who's like, "Why are you even playing in this game? These people are way better than you." And then you're <laughs> like, "Oh God! Like I was doing it. I like I'm de facto I'm wrong. More, yeah, I'm right. more wrong than I even thought I could have right, possibly exactly, been. exactly." And over time, I didn't realize this in poker, but over time, you realize that there are many things that humans engage in. That are too subjective, mm-hmm. and you know <laughs> nobody can tell you. Look, you should be following this objective function. You should be optimizing this thing because they cannot take into account all of the factors that are in your life. Right, and ultimately, like those things, those which bigger- is
1: probably more true for other things like finding a job than poker. But yes, still
0: true. Absolutely, still true. And that's that's my point is that if it can be true even in a microcosmic example like playing a game of poker it's absolutely true in these things that have like 50,000 times the variables that a game of poker does yeah
1: and the stakes well I guess I don't know how big how much money was on on the line right there but the stakes are bigger it's like so I mean I'm constantly looking through the lens of key values but like finding a job is huge. Deciding where you're going to spend most of your time for two, three, four, five years. And even if you only work there for a year, a year is a long time. <laughs> like time is our most valuable limited resource. So that's like, it's it's just huge. And then like having a year working at a company that you hate and you dread every day really takes a toll on you. It impacts your health. It impacts your relationships with your loved ones. It like, it's just, I mean, it's like a huge decision. And I think I, I literally just wrote a newsletter yesterday where I, I wish people took it more seriously than they do. I don't think a lot of people, the way that I spun it was that a lot. some people will compare it to like investing, but I, I don't really buy that because with investors, you, the whole point is to diversify your investments. And instead of investing money, you're investing time. But in a way, it's like you, if you want to think about it this way, you're an investor, but you only get to make one bet. Like you can only really be employed by one company at one time. So you should do way more due diligence and vetting than an investor would But a lot
0: of people don't. Or just don't play that game at all. I mean, that's what I ultimately decided. I was like, oh, this is a a dumb, false narrative. I don't want to do only one thing in my life. (laughs) I forgot forgot
1: who I was talking to. Yes. (laughs) The other choice is, and this is a weird thing also. So, okay, rewind real quick. If key values was, if I got paid based on hires, if someone was like, oh, I don't know if I should start my own thing or if I should get a job, I would be incentivized to be like, me, you should get another job if you're not sure yet. Because that's how, like, I mean, I'm not saying I would actually do that, but a little bit, because that's how I get paid. But today, when someone's like, when someone reaches out to me and they're like, like, I'm just confused about what I should do next in life, period. Like, should I get another job? Should I travel? Should I change careers? Should I start my own thing? I'm a huge, like, I push
0: people to start their own things. I like... Me too. Yeah. I mean, I think... And it breaks my heart when they don't. It really does.
1: Oh Well, I mean, some people, they'll get it. They'll figure it out. It took me some time too. So I guess, yeah. I mean, you're never quite fully ready, but... I understand if there's like financial reasons or no, I confidence reasons. you get
0: ready. People get ready eventually. I mean, you yeah, get fed true. up. That's you get true. That's up true. That's true. So it's quo. just the
1: question of when when the breaking point is. So don't get sad. Maybe in two years we'll do it. You planted the seed, and it just needs some time to, to I sprout. I hope so.
0: As a company grows, the software infrastructure becomes a large, complex, distributed system. Without standardized applications or security policies, it can become difficult to oversee all the vulnerabilities that might exist across all of your physical machines, virtual machines, containers, and cloud services. ExtraHop is a cloud-native security company that detects threats across your hybrid infrastructure. ExtraHop has vulnerability detection running up and down your networking stack, from L2 to L7, and it helps you spot, investigate, and respond to anomalous behavior using more than 100 machine learning models. At extrahop.com cloud, you can learn about how ExtraHop delivers cloud-native network detection and response. ExtraHop will help you find misconfigurations and blind spots in your infrastructure and stay in compliance understand your identity and access management payloads to look for credential harvesting and brute force attacks and automate the security settings of your cloud provider integrations visit extrahop.com/cloud to find out how extrahop can help you secure your enterprise thank you to extrahop for being a sponsor of software engineering daily and if you want to check out extrahop and support the show go to extrahop.com/cloud So the YC experience for you, I want to talk about that a little bit. Sure. So you went through YC, Y Combinator, and you got money, you got the accelerator money. But typically what most people do is after they get the accelerator money, they go and raise a seed round or they Mm -hmm. go and raise a series A Mm -hmm. and they go, they basically like, you know, take a one way ticket to the investment roller coaster. You got off the roller coaster before it started.
1: Yeah, that is correct. (laughs) What else? (laughs) Yeah, so not a question. I can respond though. I think this is an interesting thing people ask me. And it's funny because I still don't know how to talk about. I don't want to say anything on behalf of YC, mainly because I'm not confident I know what, YC's messaging is around this. When I got into YC and then was deciding to accept like to do it or not, my, I like obviously asked around and just wanted to know what I was signing up for because that's what, what you should do before you sign away anything. And my understanding was that you didn't have to do that. YC does, as one example, YC also invests in nonprofits. And so I just knew that it was like a wide variety. There's no rules. And I knew that there are lots of companies that didn't raise after YC, like just as a statement. And then when I went through YC, I started getting confused and started looking around and it started feeling more and more like everyone was planning to do this one thing and I wasn't. And it it was like, I felt really like I got lost in the wrong crowd or something. And so I felt a lot of pressure to fundraise, like as if that was the goal. That was like the only reason why you would do YC. Like a bunch of people were like, why did you do YC then? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I just didn't know that that was like a thing I had to do. So I don't know if I misunderstood from the beginning or if these other, other people during YC, when they were saying things like that, didn't understand that I didn't have to, it's still confusing. You can look at like Paul Graham's essays. There's lots of YC material that says, if you don't need to fundraise then don't like that is like, I can definitely like, I don't know, maybe include some links. I'm sure we can find some links to things that YC partners and, and PG have said where it's like, you should not fundraise if you don't have to. So i thought that applied to me. And so I thought it was totally fine. But then I felt really challenged by my fellow batchmates and from some partners.
0: From the partners.
1: Some, par- yeah, I mean, so some partners, it was also a mixed, a same thing. It was like mixed advice. But during the time, basically the only two partners I talked to felt really, it was pretty clear. And I think at least one of them said it explicitly that they were very disappointed in me for not
0: we are disappointed
1: yeah and that was really heartbreaking for Aww. me because i care a lot i the care Silicon probably Valley too puppet much puppet
0: masters are mad at but their they, puppet.
1: <laughs> well to be fair the thing that was weird is like it would have been easy for me to be like oh these people don't know what they're talking about or they just they're like, like you know it's easy to just dismiss advice from someone that you don't agree with or someone that's like has nothing you know but some of the thinking was that you know it's if you want to fundraise later, it'll never be as easy. And it's easy right now. And so you should do it as like a safeguard. And one of them had an example with a company in the past, a previous company of theirs, where they were planning to fundraise and then did the whole fundraising gambit. And then they signed papers and the money was supposed to be wired. And like the day before the money hit the bank, like everything was signed. Everything was like, it was all good to go. It was the, like, it was the 2018 like crash. And it was just like, it's totally out of their control, and that just you mean like the
0: 2008 crash.
1: Oh, what? Yes, yes, yes. Sorry, <laughs> 2008. Did I say? I was like, "Are you talking about
0: cryptocurrencies?" <laughs> no, no, <or? laughs> no, sorry. 2008. 2008. My bad. Yeah,
1: 2008. And the like that just wasn't gonna happen, and that scarred them because they're like, "Well," totally. And that makes and once I understood that, I was like, "Oh, I understand that." And then it's it's crazy. But then the next time they went to fundraise, another thing that happened, basically something like they were building something off of Facebook, and then Facebook changed like one of their policies or something overnight unannounced and that totally changed their business like like basically cut in half their revenue or maybe even like more. That just like changes the game entirely when you're in the middle of fundraising. So everything that was promised based on these metrics is like no longer. And it's like another example where it was out of their control. So I understood the thinking of like, you don't need it now, but you might someday. And so since you can, you should. And so like, I kind of, I actually like understood that. I think it was coming from a good place, but it just didn't apply. I just, I don't know. Anyways, the whole point is just like, I think there's no right or wrong. It just wasn't for me. And so I didn't, and I don't blame anyone. And I'm glad that I went through YC anyway. It was a lot more uncomfortable than it had to have been. If I could do it again, I would have very, like, you know, again, I was new. So now I have stronger opinions and have more information that I can kind of stand on. But at the time I was just like, didn't know. And I just thought all these people were trying to help me and I wanted to be helped, but it just felt bad.
0: I mean, <laughs> when you told me about, or it might have been Coraline or somebody told me about like the fact that you decided not to go that route after you got in, you went through it. And I thought it was just the funniest thing ever because <laughs> I felt it was almost like Shakespearean because Cortland had like endowed you with this, the skills that you needed to succeed as an indie hacker. And then the the Silicon Valley monoculture <laughs> eclipsed you in a way that was even more compelling than Cortland's like right. initial tutelage. right? And so <laughs> you, you ended up going into YC and then I imagine almost this like cinematic moment where you like sitting on, you know, you're sitting on the, the pier and you're looking into the sunset and you're like getting back in touch with your indie hacker roots and you decide to you know, actually, you know, you can imagine a montage of you running back home and sending an email to Y Combinator and saying, I've decided to opt out.
1: I mean, it's funny because I do think there was some of me like doing runs on Embarcadero and then thinking about it and then definitely You're literally the running. Too? Well, I was. I would work out of Oliver's, Oliver's my husband, his office is in Fideye and I would go running there because it's pretty. It and is. Then I would literally I run back to the office and then probably had like a moment of clarity. And I, I remember sending the email saying like, I don't want to do Demo Day. It was like three sentences, but it took me an hour to write because I was just so scared to say it. But... Yeah. I mean, it was, it's funny to hear you say that because it was really dramatic. I mean, now with the passing of time, it's like a blip on the, on the story. It's just like one of many stories, but yeah, I mean, it it was a big deal at the time. And I think I was just afraid that I would like had wronged them. So I love relationships and people and like, I'm not like into burning bridges or like holding lots of grudges. I don't like living that way. And so I didn't want, and I felt really bad that I was going to walk away from YC having disappointed people. So that was like really difficult, but t-
0: totally validly.
1: But two years later, it's like, I think it's okay. And also it turns out the world, like there's hundreds of other founders that have come and gone. And so it's like, they don't really think about me every day. It's fine. <laughs> well,
0: the other thing that's, that's funny about it is like, I don't think like, I don't think PG would care. Right. I bet if you, if you told PG the situation, you'd be like, she made the right decision or she, you know, she's totally fine. But it's just funny that it doesn't surprise me at all that there were partners and that there was kind of you know a culture that would pressure that you would feel the pressure oh, to to yeah. go in the opposite direction because i mean you become what you hate and it's funny because you know yc was kind of started out of this resentment of yes. the traditional vc yes. ecosystem and it 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 reimagined what the vc ecosystem should be and it turned it into something much much better but unfortunately it set the bar it's So, so it interesting. set the bar yeah. at something that now, you know, when you rebelled against it, it's almost like the question of like, so what is the next the, yeah, thing? No, it's what so, is the thing that so rebels just against that? that? I
1: had a conversation with my friend, John Palmer, who was also in my batch. Um, and he was saying that this was a long time ago, but that like, in the beginning, YC was like, this is the non-traditional thing. Like you're going to buck the trend and do this thing that's kind of wild and different and you're rebelling against it. And now this, it's like its own track. And it's like really just interesting that it's, but the point is in the, in the general, the beginning ethos of why YC started is that you don't have to do anything anyway. (laughs) That's, that's kind of like the take home for me. But anyways, I do think it goes in the same thing of like, there just aren't, there isn't just one right way. And it also makes me circle back to your question of what's the hardest thing. I forgot because I've just kind of like pulled myself out. I, we were joking before we started recording that I'm just like, I feel like I'm an alien orbiting around this, this world. And sometimes I visit, but I'm like, not really, I don't really feel like I belong in it in some ways. But I think the hardest thing is peer pressure, which was like interesting to me because I thought I, I had grown out of peer pressure. Because that's like the last time I really felt peer pressure was like high school, middle school, high school. But I don't think anyone grows out of peer pressure. I think just as we get older, we have more agency to say who we hang out with. And we just like pretty much avoid any situation where we feel immense peer pressure. And so YC was the first time where I was like, oh, yeah, like adults definitely still feel peer pressure. This is is real. Like it was so real. And so that was really interesting. And I still I spent the last like. Basically, April first, like beginning of Q two, is what kicked off this weird thing for me. And the last many months has been I've been in this weird headspace. But I've I think what part of it was just more peer pressure, and it wasn't YC this time. It was just like in general, I felt like I was getting so much peer pressure, or just I don't know if it's peer pressure or just like advice from people. But it was like all advice that didn't feel good to me, and it made me go a little crazy, and made me not like SF or tech, or like it but made like, me want
0: from from what peers though like
1: like everybody so i mean long story short is that i had some revenue goals and then i hit them and that was really exciting that was q4 and then q1 i was like i'm going to do better and i i basically doubled what i did in q4 and i was like so excited and then q2 started and i was just like okay sat down to like plan the quarter and just sit down and like have a strategy for going forward and i just realized like oh is my whole existence for this just to like outdo my previous Am I just like constantly competing with myself to just make this number go up? Or like, what is the meaning of this number? And like, and then I just kind of made this weird thing. Was, like, what is the point? Like, why am I doing any of this? Why is anyone doing any of this? Why do we work so hard? What is the goal? Once we get to our goal, do we just choose another goal? Is that like, I don't know. It was just this weird thing that happened. And then as I was telling my friends about this, and I have lots of founder friends now, I think everyone just like had lots of advice. They're like, well, you should hire. Maybe it's a good time to fundraise now. Right. Like there's all this stuff. And it just... It was just one kind of strange that everyone had the same advice and then that it just didn't, like none of it was really resonating or making me feel excited. And if anyone knows me or anything, but my whole thing is just like, you should only do things you're excited about. And that was scary to me that what seemed like all of the possible steps forward were things I was not excited about. And so then I started to get worried because I was just like, I don't want, like the whole point of starting a business to me is that you get to. Set your own rules, create your own world, and it should be the best world, right? If you're going to build a business that you hate, it's like, why did you go through all that trouble? You could just work at another company that you don't like. Like there's all these other prisons that other people have made. You didn't have to go through all the trouble of building your own prison, right? It's like the same outcome. So I was just worried that I had built something with no future for that I could get excited about. And then that kind of spun off into this whole other, I don't know. I just had like, maybe I was like burnt out or maybe I was just, I think there was I've never said this, but I was so happy to be on the Indie Hackers podcast, but I think I actually also wasn't prepared for the response and it was really positive. And I used to respond very thoughtfully to any email or DM that I would get. And then it was just got really overwhelming. And then a lot of people felt like they knew me because they listened to the podcast. And then they were like sharing these really personal stories that I actually really do care about, but I just did not have, like, it was just like hundreds.
0: Whoa. Yeah. It was like hundreds.
1: over the, the month after, it was like definitely at least 200 emails, messages, like, which is cool, which is awesome.
0: Now you got to start a podcast. Oh, I, I told Coral to, now you got to do it.
1: <laughs> That's so, you told him to, you wanted him to?
0: Really? I don't, I don't, I don't mean okay. to, 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 to <laughs> divert you.
1: No, no, no. I just, I mean, I but the whole thing, but then that was like really overwhelming too. It's just, I don't know. It just got to like, what is the point? Like, what do I want? And then am I the type of person that doesn't want to be able to have these real Connections with people because that was like what I lived for, but then it got so overwhelming that it like started to feel like a chore. I like, tell
0: you, the podcasts do it pretty well. That's why, I, that's one th- reason I like the podcast. What do you mean? What do you mean? Well, I mean, if you like connecting with people, oh, yeah, that's you know, true. It's just a good,
1: uh, but it's funny. It's so funny. You're like very encouraging. Corlin's like, don't do it.
0: Save yourself. <laughs> Run. Run. Run.
1: Save yourself. Like, he's like, don't, don't get into it. Because he doesn't have ad sales.
0: If you have ad sales, it gives you like the...
1: Oh, the, <laughs> It gets you on the treadmill.
0: Okay, uh, but I want to tell you a story. Okay, I'm ready. I'm really glad what you just said because, so I have a story that I kind of stopped telling. I don't tell most people because they don't quite believe me or they don't understand. Oh, that's going to be good. So back when I played poker, the reason I actually stopped playing poker is, so I was doing really, really well. How well? I mean, like, like you were making a living on it. Much more. I mean, just there, there was a boom, and I you know, was playing high stakes and like making good money. Are you is not going to tell me how? Much? Are you going to? Well, that, I mean, so I, I,
1: I get it. I feel nervous about sharing stuff like that. But it was it's in the past. It so was why a not? lot.
0: It was a lot. I mean, it like was more than you make now. Well, yeah, in certain times. I okay, mean, okay. it was very, it was very good. Okay, but it was a boom. Like it was just a boom, mm-hmm. and there were a bunch of bad players. Like if you remember, you know, poker was really popular, and it was just a lot of bad players. But I had a total existential crisis because I was eighteen or nineteen. Poker, wow. Poker was poker was all I did, and all I lived for was to have the number increase, have right. that number in my. Bank po- account, poker stars, full poker, bank account. The right. numbers. You just want the numbers to increase. Right. And I know that it's a total cliche, but it's one of those things that's a cliche because it's true. Right. When that becomes the only thing that you're focused on, yes. you will lose your mind. Yeah. Especially it, I mean it's empty. It like feels totally really empty. empty. It's totally empty, especially in the digital sense. Like I imagine if you're like a banker, at least you get to go and hang out with people at your bank. Like this was literally mm. a solitary Very existence. Solitary, yeah. My closest friends were those people that I was talking to on the forums, who were actually my enemies. Those mm. were actually the opponents that I had. And it's at the not table. even in person. And it's not even in person. So I basically like I lost myself. Yeah. And i I had an existential crisis, and I lost a ton of money because I eventually like oh, like it impacted your playing. Absolutely. And then there was a negative spiral. There was a negative spiral because don't let this ever happen to you. There's a negative spiral where I didn't like what I was doing. And then, so I would like sit down to play and I would lose money. And then I would be like, well, that wasn't fun. But then I would be like, but I don't have anything else to do. So I'll just like (laughs) open (laughs) full tilt poker again and play more. And whenever I... Tell the story to people sometimes they're like, oh, so you were a gambling addict. I'm like, not really. I was more like addicted to the thing that I was good at. Yeah. Like the only, and I felt like it was the only thing that I was good at.
1: That, so that part, I, okay, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Are you?
0: That's no, it. that's, that's I, it. That's the story. And then I, and I totally blew up and I had to find something else, else in my life. for for yourself in this, you. this But this is something that like really jives me about the indie hackers movement is it is about independence. And like it's about independence, it's about creativity. It's about this positive sum mentality. And I think it it is like wrapped up into the movement, is overcoming these kinds of psychological, like snafus and figuring out how to make a sustainable lifestyle out of your business.
1: I think that's my definition of lifestyle business. By the way, in the last year, I have learned that there are like a billion different definitions and some people like, it's really analogous to key values where like you have a term and you assume everyone agrees on that term and then you move on. But it's actually like, so to me, lifestyle business means that you have found a way to monetize something that you enjoyed so much that you would or used to do for free. Like it's just that's like it's just integrated with your life. That's I would say that's my definition and of course can support that lifestyle. To me it doesn't mean not working, it doesn't mean it's passive, it doesn't like people have all these ideas of what that is. But I I was going to say that I'm glad you should have asked this question after, but the other thing that's really hard is the whole thing with identity. And I've learned how powerful that is and you can use it to your advantage, but it can be dangerous if a lot of founders tie the success of their business with their own like self-image or self-worth and their identity becomes so entangled with the health or like how well their company is doing that it's very dangerous because I mean I just think you should not tie those things together and it was a total coincidence but lucky and I know this is like a weird but yeah, so when I started Key Values, I also decided to do an Ironman. And I know that everyone was like, that sounds crazy. But it, see, I didn't plan it this way. But it was actually really good because if things weren't going with Key Values or I was frustrated, it wasn't all that I was. Like, I was also really focused and, and really determined and, like, pouring myself and energy into something else. And if training wasn't going well, it's like, it's okay. I can, like, I had this other thing. And I guess it just, like, helped me break up who I what like it, I wasn't either of those things. I was a person that happened to be doing both things. Absolutely. Which kind of like really gave me good armor for all of the <laughs> like the hardships that were gonna come through. And so I think it's really important that people and this is again, Corlin's gonna hate me for things, but that's why I'm glad he is like a hobby because it's like work is great, even if you love it, but unless you're very, very careful to not tie that with like your entire being, it's yeah, it kind of just happens that way. So I don't think it's a bad story, Poker One. I think that's really interesting.
0: No, I stopped telling because I mean, people didn't believe it. What like, do you mean, what's not to believe? Like the, you weren't that good, the exi- or, no, the existential crisis part where I would be like, "Look, I, I really had an existential <laughs> crisis. Like it was, it literally it destroyed it? me. Oh, like, I have total existential crisis
1: every like two years, many ones to different degrees. So I'm like, that's normal. I think it's weird when people don't have more existential crisis. I'm like, to me, I'm like, ooh, it's like it's gonna just bottle up. It's gonna be really big sometime if you don't let them out here and there. So, yeah,
0: I believe it. For sure. We're almost out of time. Tell me about producing EDM shows.
1: Pfft, I just... Interest, it was like <laughs> fun. It's basically you have a lot of money. So you buy... You rent the venue. And then you book the talent. And then you pay for marketing. And oh, so you, you make actually money. actually write music. No, no, no. Producing EDM concerts, it's like the production. You have to have like the visual aspect. You have to have the talent. You have to have the music. It's like, it's like organizing the event. And then you make money based on ticket sales. So you make the... You throw the best party. And then you basically... Pay up front and hope that you make that back plus more by selling right. it. Right. That's all I got, though. Oh, I don't make music. No. Oh, okay. You're uh, like boring.
0: Next. <laughs> more or less. <laughs> what else we got? Three minutes. What business would you be building if you aren't building key values? I don't know.
1: I. That's a good question, and I probably won't think it. I don't. Yeah, I have no idea. I'll be completely honest. Part of my existential crisis was like, what would I be doing if I wasn't doing key values and it wouldn't necessarily be building a business, first of all. So I don't think I'm the type of person who's like, I can never work for someone again. I'm actually fine working for other people. That's not like a problem for me, but I do like to reinvent myself. And I wonder if my next thing, and this is like totally half baked, should or can be something related to fighting climate change. Like the whole, I feel this this is new for me, but I, I was just talking about this with a couple of my girlfriends while I was commuting here. I just have been having a lot of cognitive dissonance about like, cause I do think it's important. I do think it's real, but I'm not really doing anything about it. And it makes me feel, I like need to decide, I, I need to resolve it. I'm either going to decide that it's not that important or I need to actually do something with it. But right now what I, my actions and like how I like, it's just, they're not aligned and it's causing some friction, but possible. Who knows? I could also become a landscaper. I, could, <laughs> I don't like I could, anything, right. anything. Who knows? Lynn Tai, thanks for coming on the show. Yes, this is fun. Thanks for having me again.
0: Monday.com is a team management platform that brings all of your work, external tools, and communications into one place, making cross-team collaboration easy. You can try Monday.com and get a 14-day trial by going to monday.com slash SEDaily. And if you decide to become a customer, you will get 10% off by using coupon code SEDaily. What I love most about monday.com is how fast it is. Many project management tools are hard to use because they take so long to respond. And when you're engaging with project management and communication software, you need it to be fast, you need it to be responsive, and you need the UI to be intuitive. Monday.com has a modern interface that's beautiful to look at. There are lots of ways to use Monday, but it doesn't feel overly opinionated. It's flexible, can adapt to whatever application you need, dashboards, communication, Kanban boards, issue tracking. If you're ready to change the way that you work online, give Monday.com a try by going to monday.com SEDaily and get a free 14-day trial. And you will also get 10% 10% off if you use the discount code SEDAily. Monday.com received a Webby Award for Productivity App of the Year. And that's because many teams have used Monday.com to become productive. Companies like WeWork and Philips and Wix.com. Try out Monday.com today by going to mondaycom SEDAily. Thank you to Monday.com for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily.